Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to indigenous artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bears, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of the Indigenous Art Programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our indigenous communities from around the region and country. Dr. Holly Mackey is an Associate Professor of Educational Leadership at North Dakota State University. She recently served as the Executive Director of the White House Initiative on Advancing Educational Equity, Excellence, and Economic Opportunities for Native Americans and Strengthening Tribal Colleges and Universities. Her scholarship empirically examines the effects of structural inequity in Indigenous and other marginalized populations in educational leadership, law, and public policy using multiple critical frameworks and methodologies. As an experienced policy consultant, public speaker, program evaluator, and community educator, she seeks to use her experiential knowledge as an enrolled member of the Northern Cheyenne Nation, coupled with her research, teaching, and service experience to bridge theory and practice as a means of addressing complex social issues from an interdisciplinary perspective. Dr. Mackey holds degrees from Montana State University in Billings, the University of Oklahoma, her MLS, and her PhD from Pennsylvania State University. This is a fascinating conversation that went places I was not expecting it to go. And so please, I I really want you to just sit back and relax and enjoy this conversation. Uh, This was... This was one that I really, really enjoyed. And you're going to catch some notes about temperatures. Uh, this conversation took place in the spring of 2023. So with that said, let's jump into this conversation with Dr. Holly Mackey. Holly Mackey, thank you so much for joining us at Five Plain Questions. It's really, it's great to have you here and it's an honor to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Would you be able to introduce yourself? Uh, tell us about your background, where you're from, and a little bit about yourself, please. Yes, happy, happy to. I've been thinking about this, like what what people might actually want to know, right? Um, and I think first and foremost, I'm Northern Cheyenne, enrolled enrolled Northern Cheyenne, very proud member of my tribe, and um, it's in southeastern Montana. You know, for the most part, growing up. My, when I was really young, that's that's where I was. Um, my parents met while my dad was working on the the coal, the power plant, building the smokestacks, and my mom was from the reservation and went to school in high high school in Coal Strip, and and that's how they met. And then um, you know life happens, and and so my parents subsequently were divorced, and we ended up moving quite a bit. Um, my father was a iron worker. He worked for Bechtel Construction. And so um, I ended up leaving Montana and going to Utah, Arizona, Nevada, and then back to Montana um, when I was in middle school, um, just traveling with my my dad's work. And then um, we settled in Miles City. My dad had met and married a very kind, lovely woman whose family was originally from Miles City. And so um, her mother had had a stroke, my grandmother, and we we settled there. And so Mile City, um, geographically, I don't know, you know, the listener range, but the you know Mile City is only about two hours from my home reservation. And so so it was nice to be back, right, in in that area. And then you know my parents had to find work, and they ended up starting their own construction company. And and I was really lucky 
well, some people might not consider it lucky. I like to travel, so I considered it lucky. Um, we ended up moving all over Eastern Montana for at different points in time doing, um, either structural steel traffic control or, um, highway fencing projects. So I had, um, work ethic obviously built, built into who I am through my parents' hard work and entrepreneurship, but also I got to experience a lot of rural communities, a lot of communities and people different from me, a lot of people who, um, right, are, are really left invisible, right, in the context of national conversations, right? When you're going out into rural Montana, you're not thinking about what a large land-based tribe actually means until you're standing in the middle of Harlow, Montana, looking around and seeing, you know, what that looks like for Fort Belknap, for example, or, you know, thinking about the lack of access and, and lack of resources. So, so through that, kind of through high school, went through there. Um, I'm never quite sure how far to go back. <laughs> like back in the beginning, in the old days. Um, <laughs> but, um, and so, so I always thought it was a great opportunity for me. Right. Um, but also, you know, we had our home base in Mile City. And, and so I always returned to school there in the middle of the year, um, which, you know, leads to some interesting academic conversations in terms of missing curriculum or or, you know, the continuity of, of educational opportunities, which, you know, I'm hoping to speak to a little bit later. Um, but from there, you know, I had big dreams and I was going to go to college. The problem was I didn't know that um, college was a choice, first of all. Right. Um, because I wanted to be a carpenter. I really loved working with my hands. I loved woodshop. And I thought that I had to give that up right, in order to go to college because that's what people do. And I thought I was going to be a teacher or a nurse, maybe a doctor, because also southeastern Montana right, in the early 90s didn't seem like there were a lot of opportunities for women. And so I started college, realized very quickly that um, pre-med was not anything that I was going to be successful in, um, primarily because I didn't enjoy the, the work, right? It's not that I couldn't academically handle it. It's just that it was very boring to me, which I, I took to mean that I was not good at it. And in subsequent years, I've learned that um, being, being able to learn is much different than being engaged in the learning. And so I ended up um, shifting my whole degree to an art degree because I found that I fit in with the art department. I found that the instructors there um, really, <clears throat> they were really, um, I think, intuitive as to like human development. And, and I was originally going into art history and then um, with a minor in photography. And then, um, of course, there's always that one class that you have to take in order to get the degree that you want. And there's oftentimes that one professor you absolutely don't want to take a class from. So I tried three different semesters to take the, the last required class for my art degree and dropped it for the third time. And my advisor told me, like, you have enough credits to graduate if you just take a liberal studies degree because you've been trucking away at this for a while now. So I did that. And, and so I, you know, I took longer than the four years. I took a couple of breaks here and there, and I still, you know, ended up with a degree. You know, I wasn't sure what to do with a liberal studies degree as, you know, we should all kind of question, like, what do you actually do with a liberal studies degree, right? What's the utility? And so I found that I really enjoyed politics. I really enjoyed news cycles. I really enjoyed understanding the world. Um, I had a, a huge passion for um, thinking about inequities across the globe and, you know, 
for example, um, one story that I may never live down in my family, um, I had watched uh, Save the Children, um, you know, when they would put it on TV, the, the telephone things, and they would ask you to send food to children in Africa. And I was in fourth grade and I had packed up everything in our kitchen and my, my parents were asleep. They didn't know. And I, I packed up everything and, and my mom still to this day, she'll be like cherry pie filling. You thought they needed cherry pie filling. <laughs> Cause I had just taken like whatever cans I could. Cause they said non-perishables. So I was, I was going to send a whole bunch of cherry pie filling apparently to Ethiopia um, when I was in fourth grade. But that same passion has always followed me. You know, I really wanted to know more about the world. And, and so in terms of a, education, like degrees, um, I went into public relations and marketing um, as a master's program, thinking that would provide me employment opportunities. You know, at that time, I had had my first son, and I had to be more practical, right? I wasn't going to be touring the world or, you know, going back into med school and, you know, doctors without borders or anything like that. I needed to take care of my family. And so, you know, I did my master's degree. And um, in the meantime, my family had opened a store, a coffee shop with custom picture framing and gifts. And so I ended up not using my master's degree for any of the things that I had envisioned for myself. Um, rather, I worked in our family store. So one of the, the joys of an art degree is you get to show in galleries while you're a student, and that requires you to learn about framing. And so I ended up working for this uh, wonderful family in Billings at a frame shop and got my certified um, professional picture framer designation in the process. They were really proactive. I know it's, I, I realize it's recorded and I'm not supposed to be like your facial expression. I'm like, did you know I'm a professional picture framer? I did <laughs> not know this. <laughs> yeah. So if you ever need any custom framing, you need, like if you're in a bind and you need some help in the shop, let me know. We're going to have some conversations by the way. <laughs> For me, the precision right? was beautiful, right? It, it, as elegant as any formula in physics, right? As calming as meditation. And, and I loved to see people bringing in what mattered most to them and investing in the framing, whether it was a cross stitch, or if it was an old family heirloom photo, or if it was a piece of art that they had purchased, or if it was a poster version of a piece of art they could never afford, right? Um, I loved having those people come in where we could transform it into something beautiful that they could hang on their walls. And and I got very good at it. Um, it's one of my, it's still one of my passions. Um, and, and I think it has a lot of parallels to life, right? Um, in terms of that work ethic, that dedication, that precision, right? You can't make a mistake with framing. Like you just can't. And, and so, um, and it stops, right? So I'm an academic now. And what I find is my job never stops. I'm never done. You know, there's always something to write. There's always something to read, right? It's nights, weekends, days off. It doesn't matter. And what I love about framing is there's a start and there's a stop. And so it allows you to say like, I have done this, right? And, and that, I think, is something in, in life that a lot of people outside of tradescrafts don't ever really get. And so um, <clears throat> where it's both meaningful and you can see the fruits of your labor and then you can do something else and you can do something else. It's a, a cycle of, of creativity and reward, right? And then to give that to people and see their responses to it, right? And, and to know that then... There's a there's an emotional and a psychological fulfillment as well there where where 
and it connects people differently. You know, I have people who I've been framing for for almost, well, 25 years now. And, you know, repeat customers or I'll see people randomly somewhere and they'll be like, oh, do you remember when you framed this for me? Here's where it's at in my house or, you know. Um, so I, I like that. That was a huge tangent, but I like that. Um, the connection with people. But all said and done, um, I ended up moving again to Broadus, Montana, which for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, it's about 90 miles south of Mile City, very much in the in the lower uh, south southeast corner of Montana. And I worked for the Department of Transportation for a while, just trying to figure out, you know, a job that would have benefits. And, you know, I'd start thinking about insurance. And at this time I had my second son and and I really needed to to think about kind of long-term retirements, all of the stuff that nobody's really thinking about, right, at 25. <laughs> um, I certainly wasn't. I'm sure there are people who are. I know my 22-year-old is, but I, I'm not. <laughs> I wasn't. At 47, I'm still probably not that great at it. But, um, and, and I had an opportunity then where my, um, my home school district in my, on my reservation was looking for somebody to work in the TRIO programs and to be the Northern Cheyenne um, area coordinator for the educational talent search program. And I had been teaching at the community college in Miles City. I taught photography, graphic design, those types of classes. And then I had been teaching at the tribal college um, that is in my home community, teaching technical writing, and it was a technical writing for educators class. And, and I realized that not only did I really enjoy the academic environment, but I was pretty good at what I did. Right? I was able to, to translate kind of difficult concepts into things that people could understand and, and make meaning from and find joy in. And I think joy is kind of a baseline for me. I, you know, I, I teach law now and you'd think like, how do you find joy in law? But, but you do. Right? And and I have 15 years of students who would probably agree with me after they've taken the classes and found their own home joy in different areas. Um, but I liked it. And so through that, I was able to work with 7th through 12th graders in four school districts right on and around the reservation. And then an opportunity came up where the school district wrote a grant. Um, it was a Partnerships in Character Education grant. And what it did, it was allowed for 10 sites in Montana, tribal sites, to develop the curriculum based on their community, um, I guess, what the community would want people to know about them. And this is in conjunction with, um, for those in the education world might be familiar with, uh, Montana's Indian Education for All statute. And it requires that all students in Montana schools have an historic and contemporary understanding of at the time, it was um, seven reservations and eight tribes in Montana. Now, Little Shell has been recognized, so there's eight eight reservations and eight tribes in Montana. And so through this grant, I was able to teach at the elementary school and, and really think about what are the values that undergird what it means to be Cheyenne, and then how do you translate that into curricular models that the state can then use. Right? Um, obviously, non-Native teachers are going to have a more challenging time teaching about Native peoples in compliance with the law if they don't have anything um, or any, any place from which to start. And so I was responsible for um, really helping to coordinate the Northern Cheyenne curriculum. We you know, met with elders, had a lot of community meetings, a lot of student meetings, understanding like what would our core values be and then what historical components would we want. And that was, that was an exciting job. Um, it, was, it was great. It helped me really um, think more intentionally about the work I do now. Um, the work that I do now as a professor 
right, is, I mean, education policy and law, but also the intersections with social services, with food security, with um, missing and murdered um, indigenous um, people, all of those different things where, you know, when you're in a school setting, you see both the, the intersection and the manifestation or, or what happens when those those different disparate areas collide in negative ways. And so that, that um, really created a drive in me to want to do something better because I was watching all of these amazing, like brilliant kids get lost in a system that was never designed to support them. And, and for me, the challenge was that we had all of these people in our community who were very, very interested in helping, very hands-on, right? And, and I started to think about the difference between people and systems a little bit differently where, you know, oftentimes um, issues are framed where, you know, like the people are the problem. And it was the first time that I really saw that the systems are the problem and it's not the people because I saw people all over the reservation in the schools, outside of the schools, you know, the woman who managed the bank, right? The person works in the gas station. Everybody was so invested in helping these students. And yet there were barriers, right? Barriers such as, you know, the highest math class offered in the high school was geometry, where in, you know, the surrounding non-native schools, it would be calculus, right? Um, challenges like not having advanced literature classes if they wanted to take them, um, not having access to the science labs that, like I knew in the school where I went, you know, 90 miles away, we had these chemistry labs and we had these biology labs. And, and so I, I started to think about that. And as a result, um, I ended up going to grad school. Actually, that was a super accidental thing. Like I, I'm the accidentally successful native woman. This is the story of my life um, where I see something, it doesn't sit right with me and I decide I need to do something with it. Right? Um, and so we had been working with at the reservation level with the Penn State American Indian Housing Initiative. And so if you're unfamiliar with that, or if any listeners might be unfamiliar with that, it was sustainable housing, right, where it was built with straw. So they were straw bale structures, like a rather inexpensive building material. They would come out to the reservation, work with people in the community, teach them how to build these structures, right? And it was an answer to kind of a housing problem. And um, and so there was a, the daycare center, right, at the tribal college is built this way, as is the adult learning center, the cultural center. And it's really a remarkable way to think about housing and sustainability. Um, but what one of the instructors from Penn State had asked is that we create a summer program for students and bring students in with the developmental psychology students from Penn State to have kind of like a summer camp that also included work on these straw bale structures. So in the morning while it was cool, the students would come out, um, 7th through 12th graders, They we tapped into my educational talent search students, and we would build the structure, work on building it, and learn how to do it. And and the Penn State folks were amazing, right? They were really good teachers. And, you know, you know it wasn't like child labor, right? Like some kids worked harder, some kids didn't work as hard. It didn't really matter. It was about the process and, and being together. Because we then had Penn State ask us to come out to Penn State to give a talk about the experience to bring these students. And as I was talking to the students, I realized not only had none of them ever left the state, right? They've never been on a plane. They've never dealt with media. They've never dealt with any of these things. And now here we took six of them out to Pennsylvania 
and kind of thrust them into this this space without preparing them for what they might encounter. And and the students did have a great time. I know one of them is a tribal council leader right now, and um, I think we actually lost him on a tram, like on a connecting flight. And and so I always joke like we taught him some resilience in how to find us before we all boarded the next plane. Uh, but that's you know what happens. They were the students were great. I don't I don't want to insinuate that it was them. It was we were running and we all jumped on a tram and then you know. <laughs> But down. you get those things, you know, <laughs> those programs. It's those small stories there that make it so much better. I know yeah. he's going to listen to this and be like, "I wasn't lost." But she wasn't. <laughs> it was it was us, right? Um, I learned always take up the rear. That's that was my learning experience there. Don't lose students. Yeah. Yep. Um, yep. So when we got to to Penn State, it, it was a good experience, and the students got to go to a, like a Duke basketball game, which of course was amazing for them, and they got to do a lot of activities. And um, in the meantime, working with a lot of the people on the back end and trying to kind of figure out the logistics for our students, some conversations came up that were a little bit disturbing, right? Um, One of them being um, having one of the reporters who wanted to talk to us um, comment on the fact that I didn't really look Indian. I didn't really sound Indian. And, And I was very frustrated because, you know, growing up, like the, the dialect that comes from deep reservation is something that is seen as unintelligent, right? It's something that is seen as not equal to, right, our non-native counterparts. And, and I think that many people go through this. I think, um, you know, we hear this from people in the rural South where they're considered not as smart as because of their accent, or we hear it from the urban Black community where they're not considered as smart as, or, you know, um, people assuming that like Latino, Latina community members aren't as smart as because they have their accent. And, and so I, I, I don't want to paint a picture like this is unusual just for Indians because it's really not. It's just, a, again, a systemic structural issue that we have with this idea of, of English centralized with a certain dialect is an indicator of status. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was mad about it. And, and at the time, I remember saying something to the effect of, you know, like I've gotten a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in communication and done everything I can to try to sound like you. And now you're saying you want me to sound like the reservation, right? So all of the work that I put in growing up thinking about people's perceptions of me failed, right? In my mind. And then I started to really think about, you know, that night of where did it come from and why, you know, why, why did I think that I needed to be something else? And, and some of it is, is, you know, my dad is white, my mom is native, right? And there's always that kind of liminal space where people don't know what to do with themselves. And, and now I, I find that people are far more accepting, right, of, of these different issues now. But at the time, right, just the, like the bullying and the teasing and like all of the stuff that came with not being dark enough, not being Indian enough, right? And, and now we're seeing kind of a, a flip side of that, where I love that we're recognizing like people as having like ancestral connections, not just enrollment, things like that. But then, you know, I, I think we're also getting to a space where more white presenting natives are starting to really learn more about their culture and understand it. And, and I'm hoping it's a healing at some point. Who knows? It's total digression there. But but it, it made me angry. And I had the general impression that they wanted my students to dress up in regalia, right, for their interview. 
and which we had not brought any because that's not why we were there right we weren't there for ceremony and and so having some intentional conversations with the uh, American Indian Housing Initiative folks about that and and just going with the reporters the way that we would go with the reporters and and now all of the students are grown right so I'm not concerned with them hearing this but I don't know that I don't know at the time that they understood in the background how tense it was where you know they really the media wanted us to perform for them and Penn State did not um, just to be clear but also, I was working with a lot of people who didn't quite understand the problems necessarily with what an American Indian housing initiative brings, right? So that paternalistic, we know how to do this. You don't know how to do this. We're going to tell you where to build. We're going to tell you, you know, what your community should look like. And and that relationship ended up souring, of course, because, um, you know, the community had an idea for a park and the American Indian Housing Initiative had an idea to build a building where the park was, and it ended up being they, they maybe maybe they got a little bit ahead of themselves, and the community um, has not worked with them for quite some time, as far as I know, because of that. Right, but it, but I think it tells a story, right, of like the ways that that our systems like perpetuate like kind of repressing our own community members, like creativity and brilliance. Like we had people in the community who had plans. They knew exactly what they wanted to do. They knew how they were going to raise the money. And yet, right, the non-native organization thought that they knew it was better for us and that we needed a building instead of a park. And and so I think about those things a lot, um, particularly in in my most recent, you know, sort of roles where, you know, being very mindful of telling people what they need without asking them what they want first is it can be a challenge right and it's it's the way systems work right it's what we do but yeah so as a result of all of that i hope you have seven hours right i'm almost done for real like as a result of that um there was a time where the students had a break and um, i was very angry and just wanted to get away from all of the non-native people who were making me so irritable and I didn't want the students to see me cranky and so I asked somebody where's the coffee shop I'm gonna go get a cup of coffee and they said oh just go past out this front door and go past Rackley building that's the educational graduate programs to the next building it's Kern right that's where the coffee shop is in the graduate college and and you can go there and we'll come and get you later and and as I was walking I'm like oh educational graduate programs I'm going to go check that out, you know? And so I walked in and the man who had become my advisor happened to be in the office. And so I walked in being kind of um, less than polite due to my state of, of um, (laughs) ancestral rage, if you will, at how my students were being um, commodified. And so I, I said, what does somebody have to do to get a doctoral degree from the great Pennsylvania State University? And it was an admin, you know, person. Her name was Becky, and she's also lovely. She's retired now. But And um, Dr. Paul Begley was in his office, and he said, well, why don't you come on in here, and I'll tell you about it. And um, from that moment, like it, I think it took like three months before they had me fully enrolled in the program, fully funded. Um, at the time they had the American Indian leadership program, um, it was a master's program, so they didn't fund doctoral students, but they found the funding for me. And, you know, <clears throat> I, I think the takeaway, I mean, now that I'm in higher ed, I realize like enrollments are an issue and you need to recruit, you need to do a whole lot of things, right? Um, the effort that, 
they went to to make sure that I was fully funded so I could make it possible for my family always stands out as something remarkable. And, and, and I think to, you know, one of the questions that you get out in this podcast is like, how do you make opportunities? Sometimes they find you and you have to be open because I was terrified. I mean, like I didn't even know where Pennsylvania was on a map. I had to get it out and find it when I was getting ready to move to grad school. So I did that. Um, I got my degree in educational leadership with a focus on um, law and policy. And then I got my first job at University of Oklahoma, stayed there for nine years. And then as soon as my son graduated from high school, my littlest, um, then I, I had been actively seeking jobs up on the northern tier to get back home. You know, the, um, like I love working with Native communities all over the country. And, and I love the differences in, in their ceremonies and their jokes and their foods and their laughs. And, um, but for me, it was really important to come back up and figure out how to plug in more directly with the Northern Plains nations that, that, I, um, that I knew better or knew more, knew better. I was more familiar with, I guess is a better way to say that. Um, and so as soon as my son graduated, I ended up in Fargo at NDSU. And, and it's been lovely. Like, I, I think it's a great town. I think there's some really wonderful people here. A lot of opportunities. And then um, I think just the last thing I've, I've recently had the opportunity to serve in the Biden administration um, as the executive director for the White House Initiative on Advancing Educational Equity, Excellence, and Economic Opportunity for Native Americans and Strengthening Tribal Colleges and Universities, possibly the longest title in D.C. Um, and, and that was a wonderful opportunity. I will always really... Um, cherish the time that I had out there. Uh, what, one of the things that I learned, or I guess was confirmed, goes all the way back into, you know, the, the early, early days when I realized that systems were the issue, right? And so now, you know, the, the work that I do has shifted um, since I've been back from DC and, and really thinking about how to provide more resources to tribal communities and get, getting out of their way and letting them thrive. Um, because what I what I have really taken from all of my experiences over time working within state systems and and I do a lot of consulting work, um, policy is not the answer, right? Um, like, because people don't have to comply. You can't legislate human decency, right? You can't legislate respect. Um, you can't force Congress to appropriate money to the things that you know, the administration says that it cares about, or even to the things that legislators say that they care about. There's only so much money, right? And, and having competitive funding sources doesn't help tribes, right? It doesn't help people build coalitions. And, and so now, since being back, um, I'm very much focused on working with um, NDSU's Vice President for Research, Colleen Fitzgerald, on different large-scale research projects that allow us to help build that research capacity within tribal colleges as they want it built, focusing on the topics that they want focused on, but really relying on the strengths of, of their tribal colleges and their communities to help design these statewide initiatives. And so I'm very much looking forward to the next chapter in my life, except I'm a little tired of the snow. That's Being back in Fargo, that's the only thing is I'm... I'm ready for a warm day. For the listener, um, this morning it was negative 24 degrees at 7 a.m. Oh, my gosh. So it's, it's, and it's been like this for, for a while. So. It's been like this for four months. 
podcast. It's exhausting. It is so exhausting. <laughs> so as, as you were going through um, your your introduction here, I I wanted to jump in uh, at a lot of these terms you're talking about. Oh, you should it's, have. It's so interesting. Oh no, this is this is uh, this is your space. But one thing I wanted to um, just touch on is is the is the um, the perspective of trusting communities to know what they want. Mm -hmm. Um, I was, uh, I was in the military and I, I was in a, uh, service part called, um, civil affairs where we would work with communities and, um, attend what they needed. And one of the first lessons that they taught us going through the school, they said, it's not about what you want. It's not about what the army wants. It's about what the community needs. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the first thing you do is you go and you seek out, um, those leaders and the people doing the work and you listen to what they're saying. And that's where you start from. Mm-hmm. And what you're talking about um, just resonates with me about having the communities lead these organizations for their needs because they know what, mm-hmm. what the needs are of the community. Yeah. I, I agree with you on that. And, you know, predominantly white higher education institutions do not have a good track record. Right. And, and even some of my colleagues whom I hold in very high regard don't have a great track record of, you know, I, of recognizing that our tribal communities, one, don't, they don't need us, right? Um, that's period. They don't need us. And they don't need our research. And just because our research seems exceptionally important to us doesn't mean it is exceptionally important to them. And, and so... I feel more confident now than I have at any institution in the past that we do have an opportunity here to reset right? the ways that, that we both provide resources to, right. And partner with tribal colleges and tribal communities to figure out what it is they need. And, and, you know, the, I can't remember who said it. It's, but essentially somebody once was talking to me about their program and they said, I'll know I'm successful when I work myself out of a job. Right. And, and so ideally what I would like to see, and, and I don't believe I'm speaking out of turn, right. In terms of, you know, what the vice president for research wants or what, you know, president cook wants, like ideally what we would like to do is help to position like the tribal colleges through the leverage that we already have with the the larger funding agencies to where they're set up to do everything that they want to do and they no longer need us, right? That, that, that would be the ideal. So then we can partner with them in mutually beneficial ways, right? As, as it is fitting, instead of always thinking that we need to like, get money out to tribal colleges or tribal communities, right? They, they know how to write grants. They're smart. <laughs> you know, um, It's their ideas that, that I think right now, just the leverage that the larger institutions have to, to get funding, right? That matters. Right. But um, my, my sense is that um, that is a practice that NDSU, at least from an administrative level, um, does not advance. They want to make sure that we are advancing, centering tribal knowledge, right? tribal, tribal brilliance, tribal initiatives, tribal ideas, and not try to superimpose these artificial ideas about what we think should be going on. Right? And like I always joke, like the, 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 the Petri dishes of research. Right? And even at the federal level, they're the Petri dishes because they, you know, the, the trust responsibility creates the conditions to where any administration coming in can say, we want to do this by 2030 and we're going to start with the tribes first, right? Because they're these contained 
contain blocks, right? That all of the funding is controlled by the federal government. So you can comply or not get funding, right? And so, you know, those are the cycles that we would really like to see broken where people aren't so reliant that they can't go in the pathways that they want to go into or the degree programs they want to go into. There's even um, a project that I've started working on now that I think <clears throat> is going to be amazing. Um, and and people laugh. So I'm just going to watch your face on this video while I say this. But like, so underwater archaeology, right? I'm starting this project with this group. And, and it seems a little off, right? Like I'm an education policy person but it's not. Um, so one of the things that I have more recently learned is there's only a handful of underwater archaeologists in the country, first of all, and they all know each other. As fate would have it, one of them has a son who is my writing partner and a colleague with me at NDSU. So I had known about him in Michigan, but only tangentially. And so this uh, Lily Milner, um, this woman connected me with them. And what they were telling me was so they're both former military as well. And the pre-contact like underwater sites require tribal historic preservation or tribal monitoring in the same way that land-based sites do. And the water levels for pre-contact sites, so it's, I think they said something like 600 feet um, offshore, right, is where the water levels used to be. And so there's all of these pre-contact underwater, like traditional native sites. So Anytime there are any structures going into the oceans, right, then people need to be able to come out, monitor the work, do the work. And so what they had approached me about was thinking through what would it look like if tribal colleges offered this program, right, and then we coupled that with the diving certifications, right, where the diving school is paid for, right, they, uh, they're, they're creating a, the union, the divers union is creating a school and then reserving out slots for tribal community members to come and get their diving certifications, coupled with that educational like, um, component, right, so then we have the ability, right, on both coasts to really think about how to um, tap into, into tribal communities own members, right, for workforce and education development. Um, and so I started talking to them about like, what about, say, North Dakota, where we flooded all of these sites? Like, is that something that we could do? And they said, yes, absolutely. And and so, you know, I, I think that um, the possibilities are limitless. We just need to make sure that the people get connected to the tribes and understand what's going on. So, you know, in terms of thinking through what that might mean, right, what would it, what would it mean if we had the same oversight, right, in the waters as we do right, on land for tribal historic preservation and really strengthening the role of our, our TIPOs, right, in, in helping to protect what we have. And, and they're finding some amazing things, so whether it's like an oil rig out there or if they're putting in like offshore, offshore wind is a really big thing right now. And mm -hmm. anything that I might not be saying just right is because I'm not an underwater archaeologist, nor do I work with like offshore wind. Right. I'm in education, but, you know, that's where people are starting to come together to think about how can we more intuitively partner where like, you know, the average, well, you grew up in Sisseton, right? Yep. The average kid in Sisseton, did you ever think that you could be an underwater archaeologist? Never crossed. Never. I didn't even know they existed until 2020. Um, but thinking about what these opportunities might mean for our kids, where we have some really adventurous kids. Right? And these positions pay upwards of $100 an hour, 
right? And then partnered, so there's the professor that does the educational side of it, and then there's the industry partner, and they're, they, they're both former military who has the company working all over the world doing this work, right? And then they've partnered with the union to really create this like infrastructure where, you know, there's opportunity for travel for young people. There's opportunity to work in your home communities for people who have families. There's just all of these ways to think about it and, and to really strengthen, I think, sovereignty through a better understanding of what's there. But I don't know. It's such a weird tangent, but it, you know, it, those are the things is like, you know, I wouldn't have thought that there was a call for that. However, when I was at Lummi Nation doing a site visit in my previous position with the White House Initiative, we talked a lot about the coast. We talked a lot about fishing. We talked about all of the ways that industry needs support in there and that they need to have people who are, are workforce ready, right? And, and so it does connect in with what tribes need. But I think to your point, it's finding out what tribes need and then bringing the people to them who might be doing it already, as opposed to having those people tell them what they need. Right. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, just thinking through different funding opportunities, like right now, I know USDA has has really put a lot of money into tribal communities and I commend them for that. Right? I think that it's it's been remarkable, um, you know, but also. And I'm going to get the percentage not quite right, because I'm trying to remember from a year ago, but Heather Don Thompson was giving a keynote and noted that of all of the USDA dollars, they're the largest funding agency. Right? She's the tribal liaison for USDA. And of all of the funding agencies, they put, put the most money into tribes. But what they, only about like, I think 10 to 15% actually stays in the tribe. So the rest are non-native, like shipping companies, non-native packing and producing companies, non-native grocery stores, non-native outlets. And so, you know, how can we take what we know and then provide opportunities for tribes to then go in the direction that they want to go. We would love to see 100% of USDA dollars staying. Right? And and North Dakota is a fantastic place for that, where we have, you know, Grand Farm right here in Fargo that is funded to think about um, farms of the future, right, and eager to partner with tribes. We have a lot of, you know, just with the Ag Center here, or tribes that want to go into hemp, you know, NDSU people are probably, and they don't know this, um, is one of the three hemp testing facilities in the country. Right. So tribes in this area that want to go into hemp have a testing facility right here so they can go in for, you know, manufacturing of textiles, what have you. Now I've really digressed, which has nothing to do with me, but these are just all fascinating things. Right. That and, and I think also people don't realize in our region we are doing fascinating things. We're doing amazing work. Like being in North Dakota to some probably sounds like it's not that interesting, you know, South Dakota, rural Montana, Wyoming, the whole region, people think, you know, like, oh, it's just that space. But we have some really innovative projects and initiatives and ideas and opportunities that make this a really great place to be. Right? And we're off everybody's radar. So people stay out of our way. And then we just do great work. And the cost of living and the cost of greater. living. I know. Yes. I know my, my brother's house in Arvada, I think cost twice as much as my house in Fargo. And my house is like five bedrooms, three bath, three story, you know, two car garage. <laughs> and his is not, I feel bad for people who have to pay a lot. Or, I mean, my little condo in DC was 3000 a month. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 
you know, we, Sis and I, we used to live in San Francisco oh. and, you know, our one bedroom apartment was almost twice as much as we pay mm-hmm. here. We were actually looking at getting a, um, a townhouse in San Francisco and out there, 1750 square foot. This is back in 2015, 16, um, $1.2 million. Holy smokes. We have the exact same square footage for the place we live now. Um, and it's a fifth of that cost. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, not that, not that we want like everyone to flock to North Dakota, right? Cause then our prices will go up. So come visit, don't move here. Um, but you know, I think that is one of the things that you can actually afford to live here and go to the movie every once in a while. <laughs> True. But uh, I think our, our safety net and all this is January and February. It screens a lot of people out. It does. So. Yeah, yeah, if you yeah. were here today with us, you'd be like, oh, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. So let's let's talk about your influences. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we have those who have influenced us uh, early on in our lives in college, but also to um, what's influencing you today? What's sort of driving your interests and your motivations? I've been thinking about this question. So, and, and for listeners who are not, you know, as familiar with Indian country, I apologize that I'm, I'm really focused there, but I mean, that's where I'm focused on. I'm not, not apologizing for focusing there, apologizing if it's not as relevant, um, although it should be right for the greater good of our, our region. Right now, I think what is influencing me is, is more important than probably who, Right. It's it's a collection of who's like the underwater archaeologists and the, you know, uh, like Susan Faircloth at Colorado State, who um, you know, is doing a lot, a lot of um, a lot of work right now thinking through with me, like the like Indian Ed and policy. But I think what it is, is I've now come full circle to where I realize that the answers are not the answers. Right, like what we think is the answer to a problem is not the answer, or what we think is a strategy to address an issue is not necessarily the strategy. And so, what's really influencing me is <clears throat> I hate to say TikTok, and but it is, you know, um, just listening to what young people are talking about on TikTok and how sophisticated they are and how they talk about it, right? Um, Indian TikTok, right, more so than than non. Um, that's influencing me to think about how do we, how do we take what we know and then communicate that into younger generations and, and think, think about how to translate that into a better future. And the challenge that I also see, um, like the, the, having been in DC, right. Having worked in these institutions, having worked with governments and, and having been a, a consultant to tribal communities across all of those years, right. It's very frustrating to me to see social media right now and the ways that people are coming at people on social media or they're not understanding issues entirely, but they're, there are these, um, so I guess it's a negative influencer. <laughs> uh, the ways that, that people are grabbing onto issues and grabbing onto topics and they're so certain what needs to be done without actually understanding the issue is really, um, on one hand, causing me to to really step up my game in terms of how I can better work with communities and how I can better prepare rural educators, both native and non. I'm also very, very much thinking through 
how do we break the cycle if we can of the the negative social media influences to help young people understand that putting people on pedestals and then blindly following them is a terrible idea right um that and and that's anyone right it could be you it could be me it's anyone nobody should be given that much power and control over our thinking and how do we create the conditions to where students can or young people all people really can can think for themselves right and can ask really smart questions and and i i know that um it's easy from where i'm standing to say that because when i watch the news now like when we talk about whether things are fake news or not fake news right now i watch the news and there are things on the news that i was very much aware of and a part of when i was in dc and i know now no matter what news i'm watching it's filtered Right. It doesn't matter which, it, you know, um, uh, my friend Martha Raddatz, she works for ABC News. She uh, once told me she started her job, like she started working for NPR News. And and she said it's such a reliable source because it's um, yesterday's news today. And, and, you know, they take more time. They're more thoughtful. And I've never forgotten that. So, you know, how do we break these cycles of people just blindly buying into what they see, what they hear, what they, they think? Right. And and how do we break down this idea that we need like some leading matriarchal or patriarchal figure to get us there. I know um, like Dallas Goldtooth just put a really, really um, personal and, and heartfelt post up about sobriety. And, and I thought, you know, that's what we need our really influential native leaders to be doing for Indian country. We need, we need them to be, pointing out the ways that people are okay, right? People are okay just how they are and it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to to learn from your mistakes, right? As opposed to, you know, some of our leaders who are like, burn it down, you know, F the federal government or, you know, just F the state or, you know, F individual people. I don't know if you can put that on a podcast. I'm sorry. Um, you know, but I, but I, I do think about that is how do we, how do we, collectively come together and stop the shank shack right and and so that's influencing me a lot right now because it's you know i'm watching and i'm reading and you know i think it becomes challenging when the people that like you read what they're posting but if you know them you're like hold on (laughs) you just asked me for help last week on this right (laughs) um and and so I, I think it's a danger and I know it's not a popular stance to take, but I think that it's really a danger that we are so blindly willing to move forward and, and, and hero worship or put people on pedestals, even if they belong there. Right. But, but I would suspect that anybody who has earned the right to be on a pedestal most likely doesn't want to be there. Right. Because if you're going to look to somebody to put on a pedestal, it should be somebody that has the humility to know that, right, they're all part of one big system as well, and, and that we all have to play our part. And and so I would like to say, I mean, that's, there are a hundred people influencing me right now. Like I had spoken with you earlier about Lee Francis, right? Um, you know, Susan Faircloth, a lot of the Native folks, um, Annalise out at Western Washington, and, you know, they're they're just doing some really, really great work. Um, and those conversations sustain me, right? Or thinking about on a more local level, you know, um, just we're, we're doing a lot with PD, things like that. Or, it, But it's, you know, the, again, the people also would not want to be called out. <laughs> I think that's why I've been wrestling with this because people wouldn't want, but it's issues that drive me and it's issues that 
issues that cause me like to create those opportunities to be where I need to be to have a voice in the room. And and I think that that's something that we should all take advantage of and and really question. You can be a friend and not be a fan of somebody. You can be a supporter without being blind by somebody and and find those people. You know, I think my goal is to find people now and work with people who are less about this idea of being Indian famous and more about the idea of you know, creating opportunities for all Native communities. You have to be very selfless and you have to care deeply. And if you're in it for yourself, if you're in it to make money consulting, if you're in it, right, for the power, the prestige, or the perception of, you don't get very far. And people see through it eventually. And I I think that's, we're seeing that in many ways, that, that people will see through it eventually. And and your character, like who you are at the core, despite, you know, any mistakes you've made, despite any huge wins you've had, right? Like it, who you are comes through. And, and so I think that that's the danger of the pedestal is, you know, in the same way that we put people on pedestals for accomplishing one or two really amazing things, we, we, we push people down as not helpful to us, like if they've made a mistake or two. But oftentimes the ones who make mistakes are learning, Right, they're growing. Like there was a baseball coach at OU that he he always said there's there's winners and learners, right? And and on his team there was no such thing as a loser. And and if you were a loser, right, if you believed that there were winners and losers, then you weren't on his team. Right. And and that's just how he he operated. And it, it created a really good foundation for those young men on the team. And I think about that now where like there's winners and there's learners, right? And winners should always be learning. There's, there's nothing you can accomplish that can put you beyond reproach. And there's nothing that you can, I mean, there are some things obviously, right? Uh, like we always joke in our house, like don't commit murder. You're going to get caught, right? <laughs> like there are some <laughs> things you can do that you can't recover from. We watch, That's good advice. Yeah. We watch a lot of true crime. That's my advice to everybody all of the time. It's like, nobody is smart enough to get away with murder. Don't try. Right. It's not worth it. Okay. Um, <laughs> feel free to cut that. It was my joke this morning. I'm like, it's the advice I've been given everybody. Don't kill anybody. Because I was watching the, um, I don't know if you watch TV at all, but the Alex Murdoch is right now. Like he went on the stand. Oh. Anyway. Yep, yep. Anyway. So, yeah. I mean, I just, it, it, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. And it's not just Indian country, right? I think just watching social media across this region paints one picture of the people who comprise this area, talking to people, getting to know them, right? Understanding them on a different level is, I believe, going to be the answer to a lot of the challenges that we're facing as a region in terms of like food security, climate change, right? Educational access, all of the things. Because what I have learned is it doesn't matter which rural school district I'm in, in North Dakota, it doesn't matter which rural community I'm in across this region, whether it's you know Wyoming, South Dakota, Montana, you know Minnesota. There are really good people in all communities, right? And I, and I think it speaks even to like Ibram Kendi's work. Like there are really good people in all communities, and there are people who are not making the best choices in all communities, and it has nothing to do with where we come from. And we have to be able to find one another and work together. You know, I think particularly for North Dakota, you know, like this 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 all the like the culture wars and the everything going on in the legislature right with with education you know 
that's one one topic like I don't really get into too much because like the people who are arguing that they, they've kind of dug in right but when I talk to people in local rural communities they don't have that same impression right of of teaching about like authentic history what really happened things like that and 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 I think what we're missing is fundamentally it is best for all of us if we all learn about one another, because think about who's going to be in the legislature 30 years from now, 40 years from now, 50 years from now. What would it look like if we had a North Dakota legislature that was comprised of individuals who all understood the context of communities across the state, right? And the ways that tribal communities and non-tribal communities could work towards advancing economic opportunity for the state, right? Or thinking about the ways that, um, the way things are siloed now, what would happen if we combined resources and efforts in certain areas and and built together as a state while not diminishing the sovereign status of our tribal nations? I just think that there's so many opportunities and like putting people on pedestals or following people um, blindly or just the ways that you know, we don't question, right? We don't actually get out to talk to people and know people. We just assume certain demographics or certain ways I think is going to be and I guess part of the questioning too, like okay. something young people shouldn't do, right? <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> like actually get to know people, take the time, get off your computer, get off your, get off your phone. So we, we've touched on this a little bit, but I, I do want to uh, ask this question about how have you developed your career mm-hmm. in college and post-college? What, what were those, maybe those moments that really sort of turned your head to, to the direction that you were moving to? That's a good question. And, you know, I'll speak about my academic career. I think one of the things that, you know, when you go to, to grad school and, 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 you know, I'm sure many of your listeners are similar to me where, you know, I'm first generation, right? Only person to ever go to college in my family. Well, now my brother has, so um, he's, he's um, 11 years younger than me. Right. But at the time, right. So he was in first grade. And so figuring out the fast on my own and figuring out like, and not knowing you didn't have to go to college, right? Like I could have gone to trade school. I could have, you know, gotten a job. Um, and so a lot of it has been kind of trial error and like accidental happiness. <laughs> um, so I didn't realize when I went to grad school that with a PhD, they basically no school district would want to hire me back as a teacher. Like as I, I'd been a teacher before because I had their pay scales, right? Um, and so it didn't make sense for them financially when they could get somebody with the same experience for much less money. Um, and, and that was just conversations I had. I didn't, I ended up not applying. Um, but I also didn't know what it meant to be a professor and, and I didn't understand what tenure track meant. I didn't know what it meant to be in a research one versus a teaching intensive. I didn't know any of those things. And, and going to school at Penn state, you know, they, at the time, you know, the program was like ranked fourth in the country in my area. And I, I didn't realize like there's this expectation of like this, this way that academia works where, you know, universities try to hire, you know, new faculty from institutions that are just like a step above them and like the college rankings, things like that. So I ended up accidentally being a professor because I didn't, again, know. And then here I was with a PhD and I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> like I thought I was going to go back home and work in the coffee shop. Um, but, you know, I, I think that what has been helpful to me is to learn how to be an observer, right? So when I first got out of grad school, of course, I thought I knew everything we all do. And, you know, 
I didn't keep my opinions to myself and I was working in a predominantly white space and it was not well received in many instances um, by most some it was um, and and so you know in the context of academia um, I really learned over the course of time to kind of slow down and and take more of the advice that I would have gotten from my home community in terms of you know, just because you have to talk doesn't mean you should, or just because you want to talk doesn't mean you should, right? Um, listen and uh, listen more, you know, but also, you know, you have to find, like, for me, it's always grant opportunities, right? Finding really, really good opportunities to find ways to put um, money into tribal communities' hands, right? And, and so for that, it's networking, and so there isn't a career trajectory. Like, I don't know. I mean, I could tell you how to like, be a presidential appointee, but it wasn't the path I took, right? I, I took a very unconventional path to that route. Um, but I, I think it's making sure that you build your network and making sure your network is diverse and making sure you have a network of people who will hold you accountable when you are veering, right? Or getting a little too big for your britches. Or like, if you think you belong on a pedestal, you need to have a network of professional colleagues who will say, hold on, right? Um, and, and I think that's, that is what has helped me to be successful. Um, also being very authentic. Um, and I used to be very concerned with what people thought about me. And and to some degree, I still am. Right? I, I think about in our communities, we come from trauma, right? We come from addiction, we come from loss. And, and my family's no different. Um, and I think it's easy to look at people who have been successful coming from our communities and, and make assumptions about them, right? That they maybe had an easier life or they didn't have the same struggles or, um, and, and for me, you know, having, surrounding myself with people who could give me honest feedback was one, but also I think professionally taking the time to be, really be reflective and see like, how are you advancing what you are trying to accomplish which for me has to be about the people and how are you sabotaging it? Because you still are letting those cycles of trauma and addiction and, and I can't come up with another word for it. Like, how are you letting that still frame who you are? And, and I've, I've realized in the last few months where I've had some time to really sit back and reflect that um, I still, regardless of how much I accomplished, felt like such an imposter, right? I felt like such a fraud. And, and it, you know, like, I know, I know what I'm talking about. And like, realistically, I know all of those things. But I think that you have to get to a point um, professionally, and, I, and not just Native people, I think, you know, like, rural communities in general are struggling, like, urban communities are struggling, everybody is struggling, right, to kind of come out of something and, and really being reflective enough to know how to break those cycles within yourself and knowing that it's never too late. And so I know that's more of a personal than a professional, but it is professional. Like for me, it's allowed me to really focus now on grants with large funding agencies. It's allowed me to, to think more clearly about how I want to walk in the world with native communities and help create opportunities without centering myself in it without, you know, um, like one of the more uncomfortable pieces of my role at DC was just, you were always in front of a microphone, that right? you were always the one on stage. And, 
And it always struck me as odd because a lot of the people that I knew before were now looking at me differently, but I was still the same person that they, you know, liked or didn't like before I had the job. <laughs> and, and then suddenly, you know, you're in front of the microphone and it gives this impression that somehow you're supposed to know everything all of the time. And that pressure is a lot, right? That's, um, and, and I think that like professionally you have to, to know at each step, whether you are in trades, whether you are in food service, whether you are in academia, whether you're in the museum world, like build your alliance, know who your colleagues are, treat people well, right? And know who not to be associated with and know how to do that in a way that is not disrespectful to those people. Right? Um, you know, you don't have to let everybody into your circle, but, but also I think that self-reflection part for me has become far more salient as I've gotten older and and, you know, just thinking through, and maybe it's midlife, I don't know. Um, but, but what do I want? Like, how do I, how do I want this next chapter to read? And what, what do I not want in that chapter? What do I not want in the rest of my story? Right? Because, you know, often by the time we learn what works, we're either stuck in a rut professionally, or like we've tapped out as, you know, as far as how far we're going to go. And I think there's always opportunities. And I was just talking with my dad this like two weekends ago and I was telling him the work I was doing with, with the grants, with um, the VPR's office. And, and he said, you know, academia is nice because it allows you to, to change your, your profession multiple times, right? So your tenure track. <laughs> and then once you get tenure, then you can start to focus on the research projects or the projects you're more interested in. Right. And then as you kind of get burned out on that, you can like turn to grants. And he said, he thinks everybody should change careers every 10 years. Right to keep people engaged and interested, and 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 I and I would say that has to be true, and not to be afraid to take chances. Where like, I was terrified to go to DC, like I didn't know how I was going to afford it. I didn't know what it was going to do with my family back here. I didn't know anything, um, and I will never regret making that decision. Right, because now I know. But I think that um, oftentimes taking a chance is whether it works or not, right, is more important than not taking the chance and wondering. Yeah. Uh, I'm very I'm very thoughtful <laughs> for a Friday morning. I didn't I didn't know this. <laughs> but apparently. I yeah, I um before before your appointment, um you you were on my list to approach to be on the podcast. And when you got that appointment, I thought, well, I guess it'll be four years before I reapproach you because I, I knew you, you were going to be busy. Um, what, in your experience uh, in DC, what, I, I don't know how to phrase this, uh, I'll just ask it mm -hmm. straightforward. Uh, what was that experience like and different from what you had experienced before in the working mm -hmm. space? so it was a lot of work, right? I, I think in terms of, you know, I thought I was busy as a professor, right? And um, now I realize, like, no, I wasn't. Um, yeah, I, I spent my time in D.C. just really, really stinking busy all of the time. And, and you know, I worked under three agencies. So um, I worked under the Secretary of Education, the Secretary of Labor, and the Secretary of Interior. So, you know, kind of juggling 
like the desires of three agency secretaries and then working very closely with the White House Council for Native American Affairs and Domestic Policy Council and, and thinking through like all of the different initiatives across Indian country. Um, it was a lot, right? Um, I have to say that. But one of the things, and like I can never speak highly enough of um, Secretary Cardona for this, um, historically Indian country is missing from a lot of conversations, right? Um, outside of, of our native communities or outside of our native representatives or outside of our, you know, divisions within federal or state agencies that are supposed to be doing the work. And, and Secretary Cardona in the Department of Education was authentically curious and embraced the idea that we were not respecting tribal self-determination in education with the ways that our funding streams currently work. Right. Now, of course, nobody can get anything like one person can't get anything done. It takes a lot. Right. And, and I think that that's um, yeah, so. So the experience, I'd never been respected in a way that I was respected um, in my position at D.C., I guess, to close out that thought, um, you know, I've always worked in institutions within states that were, you know, there's tribal communities, tribal nations, but, but often very much red states who were not amenable necessarily to, at the, at the legislative level to advancing anything to do with, with native peoples. And, and so it was refreshing to see that not only was I not dismissed, right. Or treated disrespectfully. I was also not asked to teach about Indians, right. People took the initiative to learn something and then come and ask me an intelligent question about it, you know. Um, yeah. So there's there's that, right? And you know, Secretary Holland is just a beautiful, beautiful person. Um, and and so to that end, right? I think like having respect or even being respected differently within the same communities I've always worked in was um, it was empowering for me. It was uplifting for me. You know, like oftentimes you say, you know, like I wasn't any different, but suddenly people had to listen or they wanted to listen or they thought that they should listen. And, and so that that is something that I miss. Um, but I do say coming back to NDSU with, you know, President Cook now in place and having Colleen Fitzgerald in place, who her background is in native languages. Um, she's a linguist. She's done a lot of work with um, native language revitalization. Right? It, it feels somewhat similar, but not not at all. Right. But at least there's some support here now for the work that I do. Um, what I didn't expect was to how many Native people are actually working in the administration across all of the agencies. And I wasn't expecting, like, so the pace is one thing, but the support that everybody gives each other is also exceptionally remarkable. So, um, you know, White House Council for Native American Affairs is kind of that center hub, and it's based out of Interior, where they have all of the different committees, and a lot of the work that's coming out um, of the administration, regardless of, of the president, would would come through right? White House Council for Native American Affairs in partnership with Domestic Policy Council, and you know, there's Native people throughout, and and so. I had also, so working there and working with all of these other Native people from across the country who were just brilliant really made me think about the fact that we have this in our own communities too. We're just not recognizing it, 
right? Like it, it's not like each community produces one or two, right? Like, and and hearing people talk about their homes and and their schools and what they're doing, right? Um, was was uplifting, but then there's the the other side of it where, you know, like you're dealing with. I mean, essentially, the federal aid government, right? Their whole job is right, policy and spending money, right? Getting money into communities. And and so a lot of the things that we wanted to do, I, you know, I don't know that they'll ever be done, right? In terms of making competitive, not or having funding be non-competitive for tribes, things like that. Um, but what people don't understand outside of DC, and I think it speaks even to the social media piece of it is, you know, people want to criticize certain agencies. They want to criticize certain people in certain offices for things not getting done but we have the separation of powers right and and so when you want to complain about funding right perhaps the president is not the person that you want to be you know complaining about because congress is the one who who controls like appropriations right so i think that that was the the one learning i guess things that i had taken for granted that i knew that i assumed other people knew until i remembered that like I teach this, right? Like I, I don't know. I've always, I've known it from a young age, but I was also just interested in it as a young person. So like to sum it up, like it's exciting. It's fast paced, right? It's like you, you have the opportunity to work towards accomplishing a lot, right? Um, but fundamentally you're still, you know, kind of bound by, you know, the administration goals and Congress on, on what you can get done, which to me is very frustrating where, you know, but then also there's only so much money, right? Um, and <laughs> so, so there's that. So as a result, I now go through alternative funding agencies and I've written enough grants in, in the next or in the last previous four months that if, you know, if we get them, right, it has, I mean, the, the purchasing power of total appropriations for ending it in the Department of Education, right? And, and so I think that there are multiple pathways to get to where we need to be, but it's very flattering, Right, like in those positions, being an appointee is very flattering, um, and I, I think that you can lose yourself. Right, um, it's it's difficult to be authentic, and and I'm not speaking of anyone in particular. I, like for me, it's difficult to be authentic when your your messaging needs to stay on point. Right, with with a you know the the message is coming, and even I mean, it's not that I disagreed. Right? <laughs> It's just, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're a political appointee, so you're not supposed to diverge from that. And it's, so I think that that's, and it might be some of the introspection that I've been having too in this idea about hierarchies where like people are people and, and they have strengths and they have weaknesses and it doesn't change, you know, and, and I admire my friends who are career people in the federal government. I admire my friends who are still working in those spaces. And I think that they're doing amazing work um, I just don't know that we can affect the change that we want to affect for our communities if we're relying on governments to do the work. Because you mentioned her by name, um, I've heard from a number of guests and some folks, that, friends of mine that, that live in D.C., uh, Deb Holland is a fantastic cook. I never, um, I never had her cook for me. I would not doubt it, though. You know, I think my, so I, I joined um, her and her staff at the Road to Healing in Rosebud session. And 
the the one thing I think, you know, we talk in leadership circles and, you know, like leadership matters, just fundamentally it matters. And the way that she leads, you could see how deeply she cared about people. You could see her genuine concern for what she was meeting with people about, right? Um, because so I had spent the day uh, on a Tatanka harvest with the language immersion program, and she and her staff had spent the day like going to Wounded Knee and talking to tribal leaders and doing things like that. And so then I met up with them at dinner, and and I will never ever forget like I just one of the most amazing <laughs> like you don't expect it from from you know a cabinet member is when we were all done eating like there was a lot of leftover food right at the restaurant and um, Secretary Holland like made sure to get boxes and box it all up so the people who were from Rosebud who were eating with us like they could take it home like to their kids their families things like that and that's not something I had seen anyone even consider the whole time I was in DC or you know one of the things that always frustrates me is when like food is catered in how much of it's thrown away and we would say like can we get these can we get to go boxes so the staff can take it and they would tell me all these reasons why we can't do that and like health code right and so you knew all this food was getting thrown away and secretary holland just she was so mindful of the ways that that food can be a blessing she's so you know and and she had, and this is my interpretation i know that from what other people had said she had had a bit of a it was a hard day right like she was at wounded knee she was talking to you know um descendants of of people who were who were killed there and so, you know, it, it's not like I wanted, I didn't engage her in a lot of conversation, you know, and that, but I was sitting, you know, across from her and I just kept thinking, you know, even with everything that she's got going on and knowing what we were doing the next day with the road to healing and, and the ways that she's, you know, making herself quite vulnerable, right. To people willingly, like she does, she cares so much. Um, I just, that was the one thing that, so I know I never got cooked. She never cooked for me, but I, I did have one food experience with her where then I just like, it really is like leadership matters. Right? You can see, you can tell a lot about a person by what they're concerned about at the end of the meal. It's it, yeah. It sounds like someone that comes from our communities, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Mm. So you've touched on this uh, a little bit now, um, but how have opportunities presented themselves to you? Uh, I know over the course of our careers, the, they shift in the way they manifest mm -hmm. themselves or how we pursue them. Um, can, can you talk a little bit to that place? Yeah. So academia is a little bit easier in terms of, well, I shouldn't say easier. So being a professor can provide opportunities differently than in another industry. And, and typically that has to do with, you know, like my advisor, the one I had said, so Paul Begley, who, you know, got me into grad school also provided me the opportunity to have funding Right. Then he also provided me the mentoring I needed to make sure that I, you know, interviewed well for my first job, which I didn't in case anyone wants to know. Um, I found out later, like nobody wanted to hire me, but they did anyway. Um, <laughs> so that's embarrassing to find out. Um, it still stings a little. And that was in 2010. Um, but the, you know, I, I think that's where your network comes in, where, you know, I, I make it my business to know people in my field broad form. And, and through that, then like, if somebody needs something like a, 
to, to want to do some research about tribal communities or if they want to do something on leadership or policy, right, they'll, they'll approach me typically. Um, I also am the co-director of a mentoring program. It's called the Jackson Scholars Network. Um, and so it is um, a mentoring program for doctoral students of color who want to become faculty members. And we have, you know, between 80 to 95 students a year um, across around 50 institutions in the country. And so, you know, I, I think that the, the Penn State model for mentoring was you, you do everything you can for your graduate students to position them to be successful, and then you pay it forward, right? And, and what I have found through the Jackson Scholars Program is that by trying to pay forward the opportunities presented to me early in my career, it's coming back around where now a lot of these students who are now faculty members and they're wanting to do some really engaging work are reaching back out to me and saying like, you know, do you want to do this work with me? So service creates opportunities, right? Um, authentic service. And, and I can't state that enough. Right? I think it has to be authentic and it has to be um, non-self-seeking right? in order for it to create the opportunity. I mean, it might create other opportunities too, but I mean, if you want to sell your soul, you can do it. <laughs> I'm not not into that. Um, and, and so that there's been that. But then also, you know, it is really accidental. Like I pay attention, you know, just thinking about, you know, Joe, at the, you're at the Plains Art Museum. Like I pay attention to who's at the museum when I'm at the museum and then intentionally try to make contact with them if I've heard about their work. Right. So Amanda Hype most recently when we were there for an event. I'd heard about her. I'd heard all these amazing things about her. I'd never actually met her despite, you know, working in the same place and living in the same town. And, and so I intentionally made that connection with her. Right. And then um, I know that we're going to follow up with a meeting. I, I check my email. <laughs> uh, but I think that that's it is you create the opportunities for yourself and you can't just assume that you're so good at what you do. People are going to come to you and you have to be willing. I think all of my opportunities you have to be willing to work yourself from the bottom up. Like you have to understand that it's a learning process through all of it. Right. And so all of the opportunities I've been presented, like, so for example, I had been asked to um, be a, to, to edit a special issue of a journal. Right. And knowing full well, I'd never done that before. Right. I reached out to a senior colleague of mine who had done it before, who could then, it kind of helped guide me through the process. But then we also pulled on an emerging scholar who had never done it before. So then he would have the opportunity to, to be a part of the process. So when he was then a faculty member or a senior faculty member, he'd already been through the process and he would be able to do that. Right. And, and so that creates opportunities anytime you're, you're, you know, being mentored while also mentoring. It's, it's, and I think that that is a very native way of thinking about it. I don't know that all people think of it that way. Um, but all of my opportunities have come from being mindful when I, I was presented my opportunities that I could bring other people with me. And and that's just a model that I think starts at Penn State and is, has continued throughout. So, you know, for example, the, the emerging scholar that we brought onto that special issue, right, he's, you know, a principal, a superintendent. He's an amazing scholar. He's just a really amazing person. He's from the Crow Nation, right? So he's now um, the acting director of the White House Initiative, right? 
And so I brought him on as the deputy and he's just doing amazing work out there. And, and I think that it's, it kind of comes full circle where it's not nepotism so much as you provide people the opportunity to show you what they're capable of. And then you continue to provide those opportunities. And I would say, although not a part of the conversations, that is something that people who have presented me opportunities have always done is presented me the opportunity and then watch to see how I handled it and then provided additional opportunities. Hmm. What would you say to the 18 to 22 year old that's listening to this conversation? So much. So my sons are 22 and 24. So I say a lot to this age group. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, But I also work with this age group a lot. So um, at NDSU, typically like any of the, the students who are, kind of in activist circles or struggling or, you know, trying to find somebody who, who might understand them tends to find me at NDSU. Um, I'm the only Native American faculty member at NDSU. And, and so um, as a land grant institution, that's something that is not to be proud of. (laughs) Um, But as a result of that, I do get um, a lot of the Native and other Black and Brown students who, who seek me out. And one of the things that I always tell them somewhat goes back into my social media comment is like, be mindful of what you don't know and, and seek out ways to develop understanding before you make up your mind about something. Right. So if it appears that something is happening a certain way, it might be right. But just because somebody tells you that, you know, get the real story, find out what's actually going on. Um, Because I think a lot of the divisiveness that we have now is just people not taking that time to do that. But then also knowing who you are and what you want. You know, I have um, both of my boys are doing amazingly well in life. And, you know, one is in a gunsmithing school, he's just going to be finishing up. And the other is in cybersecurity and data analytics and is going to be graduating with his his master's in a couple of months at 22. Um, And, you know, they're they're both exactly where they need to be. Right. They both started school when they needed to. You know, my older one needed to take some time off before he went back to school and, and really figure out what his passion is. Right. But had he listened to me originally, my older son would have been in college that he didn't want to go to. Right. He he did he gave me a semester. You know, I said like at least try it. And he did. Right. He would have had a degree that would have been worthless because it wouldn't have been what he wanted. And I always think that it's important for us to tell young people that at some point you have to take apart what it is people want for you and what it is you want for yourself and then be confident in knowing that you can get to where you want to be and people aren't going to love you less, right? They're not going to think less of you. I always think back to 18-year-old Holly that wanted to be a carpenter, right? And now I'm a professor and a former presidential appointee. I would be really, really happy today flipping houses, like, I think that would be the dream job. <laughs> and I'm not so sure I haven't decided I'm still going to do that. Um, but I didn't listen to myself. Like, I didn't listen to my passions. I didn't listen, you know, and and you can get, you know, there's this flattery of people telling you that you're smart and you're, you know, you can do so much more than this or, you know, you're not living up to your potential. And I think that young people need to understand that only they can decide what that is. And, and college isn't necessarily the answer, right? There's entrepreneurial opportunities that that aren't in there there's you know there are ways that 
you know, associate's degrees can help supplement. I think about, you know, all of you who are artists, Joe, they, so maybe having some business knowledge would be helpful, but you don't need a business degree, right? You just need to, to get the information that you need to, to make sure that you're successful on the business side of your art. And, and I really wish more young people would listen to themselves and, and not, and filter out the noise, you know, that you're not good at math or that you're not capable or that, you know, only women do that job or only men do that job. And, and it's really just kind of dusting through the noise and it's, it's hard. And I don't know many who do it successfully, but then similarly, I guess the, the last advice is knowing that you're going to struggle, right? You're going to fail. You're going to be successful, right? It's all going to come in these, these ebbs and flows and waves and, and you, you, you can't, you can't be the CEO if you haven't been the janitor, right? And, and what I see so many people today is, you know, they want the big job and the big dollars and, and, you know, the drivers and the planes and all this stuff. And that's great. Right? I mean, I don't know that I would want that personally, but you know, if that's your dream is to be a CEO of a major corporation, that's, that's wonderful. But what I don't hear is a lot of discussion about what is your plan to get there? Right. And are you willing to learn? And and if we're not willing to learn, then, you know, even if you were the CEO, you would not be very successful because you wouldn't understand how all of the different components of the business work. So it's, those are the things I tell my boys and, and just know yourself. Also, don't kill people. No one's smart enough to get away with murder. <laughs> <laughs> I tell them that often. Sometimes I just text it to them randomly. But I'm also concerned about drugs, like, you know, like, any, if you think you're smarter than fentanyl, please stop thinking that because you're not, right? Like, if you think that the choices you're making are just fun, right, they're not. And, and there's nothing wrong with saying I've made a mistake and I need help. And so many young people simply aren't doing that because we have created the conditions that make them afraid to do that. And, and so find, find somebody who you can be yourself with and say, this is what I want. This is my dream for myself, or this is what I need help with and, and let people help you. So what do you, what do you have going on right now? What's, what's next coming up for you? So much is going on. So much is going okay. on. Um, a, a few things we wrote, um, a grant to NSF NDSU did. Um, it's a farms engine grant. It's like farms of the future. And so we're waiting to hear back on that one, um, but it's got like last acre connectivity and drones and just all kinds of, of really interesting things in there. And, and the goal for me in that is to connect tribal communities and going back into the USDA dollars. Like how can we create the manufacturing plants for our products? How can we create our own shipping companies? How can we, you know, all of these things. Um, so there's that. And then I'm working on three different projects um, right now that, um, we find out next week if they're funded through the Spencer Foundation and they're these big ideas in education. And, and so Spencer is, they're called these vision grants and they're taking interdisciplinary teams of scholars to create research projects that has the potential to really move the needle systemically on, on problems of practice and education. And so um, one of those is looking at um, assessment in schools um, the other one is looking at um, really the opioid epidemic and um, in rural spaces and and thinking about all of the social determinants of, of health as it impacts schools. And then the other one is looking specifically about um, Indian education, language and culture preparation. 
And so I've been working on those, um, just kind of getting back into the, into teaching, right? I've been back since January and figuring out where I fit after leaving for a while and hanging out at the Plains Art Museum when it's not 20 below. <laughs> <laughs> and it's an old building, so it's not much of a shield from the It's world. not, but you know, there, there's a lot that I can see us doing. So, you know, really scouting out potential funding opportunities with communities who want to do something big and bold. Right. And so I would, you know, welcome anybody who wants to get a hold of me for that. I'm doing a few keynotes. Um, you know, so that's that's one nice thing that kind of keeps me going from my role in DC. And I was doing it before as well, but having the opportunity, I'm heading out to Hilo River Indian community in March and um heading out to Washington in April and maybe Montana in April, um, just to to connect back in with communities and and, you know, I do a lot of public speaking and consulting, so uh, mostly in the summer. So we'll see where that takes us. But right now I'm ready to get my garden going again, um, get the dust knocked off of all of the corners of my house. You know, well, while we were in D.C., it got very musty <laughs> in here. And, you know, I, so I'm really looking forward to that in a, a slower pace. Right. I, I think when you, you talk about what's next, like for me what's next is being far more intentional about where I choose to spend my time and, and being better at recognizing what I'm doing for me and what I'm doing because other people need me to, or expect me to, but it doesn't align with who I am. So that's, that's where I am. That's great. Um, yeah. And so that being the case, uh, where can our listener uh, find your work or connect with you? So I have a website that I've not updated since 2018. Maybe this will give me okay. the, maybe this will make me do it. Um, I have exactly one blog written on there um, and it's hollymackey.com. And I think I'm at HJ or doctor. Let me look at my email. I'm on Twitter. Find me under Holly Mackey. There aren't a lot of us. Um, and then, um, I'm not on Instagram that much. I'm on Facebook. I had a, so a funny story for your listeners. Uh, I did the keynote at the National Indian Education Association, the opening keynote in November. And um, I was really irritated with Facebook and just social media at the time. And so I was like talking about people need to like be kind, like stop tearing people down. Like we all talk about lateral violence and we all talk about all these things and usually in those rants, they're like laterally violent <laughs> or they're, you know, tearing people down. And so I was like, just be nice, right? Stop, stop doing this. And it never occurred to me that when you mention social media in a keynote in front of thousands of people, right, how many friend requests you're going to get. It was so cool. Like, just the time it took me to get from the venue to the airport side to fly back out. So, yeah, find me on Facebook. I will, I will follow all of your all of your stuff. Send me gardening ideas. Oh, do you want my email? That's holly.mackie at NDSU if anybody wants to email me. Okay. We'll uh, put links in the show notes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, Joe. Yeah. Like, I've never done no, this No, it's before. all good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, what a journey, Holly. Thank you mm -hmm. so much for this. This was really great. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Not so much that I want to start my own podcast, but and that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. 
I want to thank Dr. Mackey again for her time and sharing her story with us. Like I mentioned at the the intro of this podcast, uh, this was going to be quite a journey. Uh, even even in my own research, I hadn't realized that uh, Dr. Mackey is a certified art framer. It's one thing, I think, to be certified to do something, but to have that passion and to be able to talk about what that is at that level of of love and compassion for the work. I mean, it rivals anyone that I work with, uh, both in-house at the museum or in the field. And I, I don't mean to disparage my coworkers because they are amazing at what they do, but listening to, to Dr. Mackey talk about the, the art of framing was a particular treat and something that I really enjoyed. And I, I imagine you enjoyed that as well. Uh, if we could just have people adore the, their craft. Well, I mean, people do, right? But I just appreciate the fact that that someone who does so much just appreciates uh, the work that they do to be able to talk about it at that level. And with that intentionality, I mean, whether it's being an art framer, being an advisor to the president of the United States, to being a professor, to being an educator, to being a community member, Holly brings something to the table that is exceptionally uh, special, right? And you feel that when you're when you're in the room with her, her her presence, not just being in the space and taking up space, not like that, but being present in the moment and the topic at hand. You really know that there is someone there in good faith, and it's it's a gift. It's really a gift to be able to be in a room with someone uh, with that intentionality. And so I really hope that you have someone that you work with in your community like we do with uh, Dr. Mackey in our community. So I want to thank Dr. Mackey um, for a wonderful conversation. One last thing, too, and you may have noticed that we talked for a minute about um, uh, Deb Holland, Secretary Holland, and her food. And I just want to, I want to come back to that later on a future episode. So keep that in the back of your mind about food sovereignty and maybe Deb Holland's take on that as well. There's there's definitely more to come on that topic. So I want to thank you for joining us and spending your time listening to what I feel is a very important story and perspective from our community. So please join us next time as we speak with another incredible person. I'm Joe Williams. You can find me on our Facebook page and our Instagram accounts at Five Plain Questions or at the plainsart.org website. There you can see our programming, our past videos, and these podcasts. And if you have a suggestion for someone for me to interview, please reach out to me. I would really like to hear from you. Well, that's it. You take care, and we will see you next time. This has been an 11 Warrior Arts production.